Good morning. Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be starting in verse 18 and go all the way to ver- uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Colossians three eighteen to 4, 1. I think most of you will remember or recall the movie The Wizard of Oz. I think probably that's common amongst all of us having seen that movie as a little kid growing up. The Wizard of Oz, you know, begins in the first 15 or so minutes with Dorothy and her in Kansas with her little life in Kansas and she's singing somewhere over the rainbow, which I will not do for you right now. Uh, but uh, she's enjoying her life and all of a sudden tragedy comes, right? Tornado comes into Kansas and starts sweeping through. She's looking for a little dog and she grabs Toto and they head into the house and they lock themselves down and then the tornado comes sweeping through the town and picks up her little house. It's actually just a guy holding a string with a little fake house on it. He's twirling it around and then just kind of sets it down in this brand new world. If you recall the scene in your mind, she's there in her bedroom holding her little dog tight. She walks out to the door and she opens the door and you realize there's an entirely new world that you've been missing out on this whole time. The whole time the movie up until that point is in black and white, obviously, as I've seen it growing up. (laughs) She opens the door and there's this world of color that's on display in front of her. Dorothy herself is transformed into this colorful person standing in front of you. Well, in many ways, Jesus comes into our world and he's preaching this message that we hear picked up on in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, when he says to everybody, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's explaining to them that this new world has come down, is gradually taking over the world that you live in right now. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he starts going in chapter 5 and explaining what that means and what the law of the kingdom of heaven really looks like. And it sounds very similar to the laws that we're all used to, we're accustomed to, but they take on a much different nuance. It's not about just committing adultery on your wife. It's about lusting after a woman in your heart. It's not about murdering an individual. The intent is that you wouldn't be angry with your brothers and your sisters. So what Jesus is doing is dropping a colorful world right in the middle of our own, and it gradually starts to expand and fill our screen. And as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, like Paul tells us we are in Colossians chapter 2, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we are too transitioning our lives in order and in accordance with the kingdom that Christ has laid out for us. Today in our text this morning, in Colossians chapter 3, we're going to see that that begins with the family. It begins at home. Let's read our text, starting in verse 18 18 of chapter 3. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. 
Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, not uh, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, the most pivotal aspect of this particular passage that we're in is that Paul presents a total transformation of the culture and of the prevailing thought of the day. But the best part about this passage is that it doesn't matter what culture you're in, this passage is counter-cultural. If you're in first century Greco-Roman society, this passage is counter-cultural. If you're in 21st century America, like we all are, this passage is counter-cultural. But oddly enough, from the first century to now, it's countercultural, but for different reasons. In this text, there are three relationships that Paul brings to the foreground here that we need to pay attention to. There's the wife and the husband relationship. There is the parent and the child relationship. There is the bondservant and the master relationship in that exact order. And each one of these relationships, a first century Gentile, or really a Jew for that matter, would, would see the, the second pairing of those relationships as counter-cultural. So the wife submitting to the husband, the child obeying the parent, the bondservant obeying the master would all have been normal in first century culture. It's the second half of those pairings that would have been counter-cultural in the first century. Wait, you're placing restrictions on men, on fathers, on the masters? Why? Now, in 21st century America, it's no longer the second half of the pairing that's countercultural, but the first half of the pairing that's countercultural. Wait, you're saying that wives are to submit? You're telling children that they aren't the heads of the household? You're telling servants that they have to submit to all the authority that is placed over them? So whether you look at this from a first century perspective or a 21st century perspective, this passage will frustrate the culture. So our time this, in this passage will definitely be countercultural regardless of what I say. Just in reading the text itself. It's countercultural. Let's take a look at what Paul is saying here. The first point that he makes is that the husband-wife relationship should return to its intended state rather than battling for position. The husband-wife relationship should return to its normal state rather than each battling for position. Look at with me at verse 18 and 19. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So the first household pairing that Paul mentions in this text is the husband and wife. And he gives a command to each. To the wife, he says, submit to your husbands. And then to the husband, he gives two commands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So first, I want to draw your attention to the differences 
between this set of commands that he gives to the wife and the commands that he gives to the child and to the servant in the following verses. See, to the wife he says, submit, whereas to the children and to the servants he says, obey. And those are different, and that's not by accident. See, the nature of the commands to the wife are totally different than that of the child or the servant. The term Paul uses for submit here, it basically implies a voluntary ordering of two people that are of equal worth and value. One is submitting and falling under the leadership of the other so as to accomplish a greater purpose. It's intentional. Whereas obey has the connotation of listening. That's what he, he literally means. We tell, our, we tell our kids sometimes, you heard me, but you're not listening to me, right? It has the connotation of obedience. When a child listens, it means that they're obedient. They follow through with what they're being instructed to do. And that's what happens to the child and the, the servant in this passage, but not to the wife. The wife is more of a voluntary depiction of submission. So Paul commands the wives are to, to order themselves under their husbands. And he says, then he says this at the, at the very end of that, he says, as is fitting in the Lord. Now, it, it may seem odd that Paul just jumps right in to the middle of this command for the household, right? If you look at the surrounding context of, of verse 18, it just seems like he just changes subjects and just jumps right in there. But look at what he says one verse prior in verse 17. He says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. So the grounding for the wife's submission to the husband is not for the sake of the husband. The grounding for the wife's submission is for the sake of Christ Himself. I'm going to remind us again that we've been transferred out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of His beloved Son. And we've talked about how we've been granted citizenship in God's kingdom. In God's new world that he's creating. But the question that we need to answer here is, why is it fitting in the Lord, in his new kingdom, that wives submit to their husbands? We won't be married in heaven, right? So why doesn't you just turn us all loose now and just say, look, he, he kind of each for his own and, and, and sort of a free-for-all. Why is it in, in Christ's new world that he's creating that wives should submit to their husbands? Well, go back with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, uh, verse 16. I'm going to remind us while we're turning there of what Genesis chapter 3 is. Remember, the husband and the wife have disobeyed God's commands. And so they have sinned against God, and now he is going through doling out uh, punishment as a result of their sinful behavior. And so uh, what I want us to see in this passage, what I hope we see in this passage, is that the submission or the, what Paul is calling for here is not a result of the fall at all. Look at what God says in uh, verse 16. He turns to the woman, and this is, this is what he says. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So what do, we, what do we see here in this passage? We see that after the fall, there's a new dynamic that's entered into the family, into the nuclear family. Strife. 
strife as a result of, of sin. It comes into the family dynamic. Look back one chapter to chapter 2, verse 18. Just flip, flip one chapter back. Genesis 2, 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So what we see here, is just one chapter earlier, is that as the Lord is creating this world, He sees that it's not good for Adam to be alone all by himself. And so what He does is make a helper that's suitable for Adam. A helper that will come in and actually join Adam, that will be a complement to Adam as he works the garden. He's not the same as Adam. It's actually different than Adam. He was just created two men if it would have, he would have wanted it to be the same as Adam. That's not what he wanted. He wanted somebody that would be a helper suitable for Adam. But now one chapter later, there's a punishment for the disobedience and strife enters into that relationship. And what does the strife look like? Jockeying for position. That's what the strife looks like. Jockeying for position. Where each one chapter earlier are confident in their roles in the relationship. Now what's entered into the fray is jockeying for position. Adam was created first as the leader. Paul tells us that uh, in, many other, in many other books. Adam is created first. He's the leader. And Eve comes along from Adam as a helpmate to him. To be complementary to him. But now God says, your desire will be contrary to your husband. Some translations have, your desire will be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. And we know what that phrase means, even though it seems odd. We know what that means because one chapter later, God uses the exact same phrase to describe Cain and his relationship to his brother Abel and the sin that he's considering. See, one chapter later in chapter 4, Cain is considering killing his brother Abel, and God says this to him, and if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Here it is. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So like sin's desire to dominate the individual, and the individual's responsibility to put sin under its foot, the husband and the wife relationship post-fall is one of strife where the wife is working against the husband, not with him. And the husband is using his, the strong hand of force to force submission on his wife. And that's what the author is getting at in Genesis. This is the divide of the fall. Strife in the household. And I know no married couples in here understand what that is like. <laughs> well, let's go back to Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. What is Paul saying here by telling the wife to submit to the husband as is fitting in the Lord? See, if we're no longer citizens of the kingdom of Adam or the kingdom of this world, we're no longer citizens of that. We've been called into this new, much more colorful world that's slowly beginning to take its place in our world. If we're called to follow after the pattern of that new kingdom, then what would the husband and wife relationship inside the household look like in that new kingdom? It would look like the relationship Adam and Eve had prior to the fall, one of perfect complementarity. Now the command for the wives to submit to the husbands would have been absolutely routine in a first century context. 
In fact, it would have been assumed. The common cultural assumption would have been something like the man dominated the household and everybody that was in the household should submit to his authority completely and totally unquestioned. No rules on him, unhindered. So verse 18 wouldn't be shocking in a Greco-Roman society. However, verse 19 would never have even been commanded of a man in the first century. So by giving two commands to the husband here in this passage, Paul is clearly and cleverly undermining the common assumptions of the culture of that day. He's commanding husbands that you have an obligation to your wives. Don't fall into the sinful trap of Adam's world. Where you exert dominance by rudeness, by words, by harshness. And that could be everything from abuse, even to just snide comments. That's not the kind of people that we are. That's not the kind of kingdom that God is creating. There's no room for divisive behavior if the two of you are partners. Now you see that this text doesn't have anything to do with who does the laundry. Sorry guys. Has literally nothing to do with who does the laundry, who washes the dishes, who vacuums the floors. It literally has nothing to do with any of that. All those decisions are within the household. And everything for you is fair game, man. So, sorry. This has everything to do with leadership. It has everything to do with the husband in love and humility guiding his family in biblical faithfulness through life. It has everything to do with that. Now, there's, there's plenty of men, when they hear someone say, lead your family, they have no idea what that means. And yet, if you were to place them at the head of an organization, they would totally get it. If you were to make them the head coach of a football team, they would totally understand. They would know that that 5'11 uh, kid that's 185 pounds dripping wet and runs a 4-2 in the 40 probably doesn't belong on the offensive line. They would instinctively know what, what, uh, what attributes he has, what, what positive skills he has, and they would put him in the position where he can best thrive and succeed. But for some reason, we often fail to think of our families in a similar way. You've been put over a household, and you're responsible for their health, the well-being, the provision, the spiritual well-being and growth, education of the children in your home. What's your plan to address these issues? What's the plan that you've laid out for your family, you've led your family to? So men, let's just ask ourselves the question, where are we leading our families? What's the plan for spiritual growth of our children, of our families? What's your plan to raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord? What is it? How are you going to help train them and train their minds to understand who the Lord is? How are you going to provide answers to the complex questions that they're probably already beginning to ask you and you're having to answer? Now, if the church is at the top of that list... Well, I'm going to just I'm going to bring them into church. That's how that's how we're going to do it. Well, that's a good first step. 
But if nothing is in the place of two, three, four, five, not good. Men, you are the spiritual leader of your family. And that's not a responsibility that you can hand off to anyone else. Now, that doesn't mean that your wife can't teach your children, obviously. She can and she should. But they need to hear from you as well. You need to be the one leading this conversation. Initiating this conversation. Now, the Bible isn't going to tell men in an imperative, be the leader of your family. Instead, it says the man is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. It's not an imperative, it's an indicative. And if we get those two crossed, we don't understand the Bible at all. It's an imperative tells you what to do, an uh, indicative tells you what you are. It's not an imperative, it's an indicative. And what that means is whether you do something or you don't do something, you are leading your family. Period. In the same way, if you sit on the couch and you don't go to work, you will lead your family into poverty. Yes. Well, in the, in the exact same way, if you sit on the spiritual couch, you will lead your family to hell. Period. Amen. But to the single person in here, we get to the household codes, we start talking about the, the family, and sometimes single people feel like, well, you just, this doesn't even apply to me whatsoever. But I think it does apply to you for, for two reasons. First, we sometimes act like there's something wrong with singleness. And there's not. Like you become a real Christian or something whenever you get married. And that's just absolutely not true. Let me remind you first that the person writing this is single. Paul is single. And in fact, not only is he writing this, but he's also, he makes arguments elsewhere that it's the preferred way to be if you're going to serve the Lord fully. Singleness. Second, and much more importantly, it should be a reminder not to settle. Do not, under any circumstances, settle. There are plenty of people that are married, maybe even in here, that married people that they thought they could change. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't spend forever looking for the unicorn either, all right? There's not a 22-year-old man out there that's never been married that knows how to lead his family spiritually. Just, it doesn't exist. All right? That does, that's, not, that's not there. There's not a 22-year-old lady who knows what it's like to submit to a husband and has fully learned how to do that. That, that. that just doesn't exist. So don't spend all your days looking for the unicorn. What you're looking for is someone who is deeply in love with the Lord and wants to follow everything that he has laid forth in humility and love, and don't settle for anything less than that. Second thing that Paul says here, the parent-child relationship should be aimed at pleasing the Lord. The parent-child relationship should be aimed at pleasing the Lord. Look at verse 20, what he says there. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. So if you continue with what we just talked about in the previous little section of the passage, the parents, the husband and wife, are coming together. They're complementing one another in the raising of their children. <clears throat> Paul commands here 
children, obey your parents, for this pleases the Lord. Now, in Ephesians 6.4, we talked about how Colossians and Ephesians go hand in hand. They run parallel to one another. In Ephesians 6.4, he says, bring up, he challenges parents to bring up our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So Paul says here that in everything, the responsibility that Paul places on the children is to obey their parents in literally everything. Now, there's many times where children, as they're little and as they begin to kind of grow up, they start approaching adolescence and their relationship with the Lord may continue to grow. Hopefully it does. It's beginning to grow. They're starting to question what the Lord's will is for their life. They're starting to wonder how to follow after the Lord's voice. They wonder how to follow him, him daily, to which I think the Bible makes it abundantly clear. Listen to the voice of your parents, period. Sometimes those are Christian voices, and sometimes those are non-Christian voices. And, 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 I, and I don't think Paul wants the children to follow their parents into sin at all. I, I understand that. That's not what he's getting at. But whether they're Christian or non-Christian, your obligation as a child is to follow the voice of your parents. That's how, the, how, how to follow the Lord. That's his answer to how to follow me. How to please me as a child is to listen to the voice of your parents. So as they start off in life and they begin to wonder who the Lord is and, 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 and how, what his will is for their life, he has started them out with training wheels. He's put before them a flesh and blood person to give them the answer to those questions. What is it like to follow after the Lord's voice? To follow instructions? To learn obedience? To learn submission? To learn what discipline feels like? And parents, if that doesn't put a fear in the pit of your stomach, you're a fool. Plain and simple. Your children are learning how to follow the Lord by listening to you. Ouch. I'll say that for me. Ouch. You might say that you're representing God by how you raise them. It's no wonder that we often see God as our earthly father in the same kind of way as we see our earthly father. This is why disciplining our children is vital. The discipline of our children is commanded to us, and it's vital for their upbringing. Now, society has gone absolutely crazy when, it, when it's concerned with the raising of children because they're more concerned with the child's psyche than with their soul, their emotional well-being than with their actual spiritual well-being. And they're not at all worried about them coming to know who God is. In fact, they would much prefer them not know who God is. So you take worldly wisdom on parenting with a grain of salt. That doesn't mean they're always wrong. It doesn't mean that everything they say is wrong. Sometimes they're right, but they're not always right just because they're scientific. As an example, let's just, if we haven't pushed the cultural boundaries here, let's just do it one more and talk about spanking for a second. The Proverbs make it abundantly clear that spanking is divinely directed as a discipline for your children. It's a divinely directed discipline. And it's a shame that it's fallen out of favor in our culture. Especially with some of our parents, even parents that are inside the church, see it as unnecessary. So you have to wonder, 
Why would spanking be divinely directed? Why, why, would, why would God want that as a form of discipline? Now, it doesn't mean that it's always necessary. It doesn't mean that in every situation it's the best form of discipline. But why would it be divinely directed to us? Proverbs 23, 13-14 says it like this, Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with the rod, he will not die. Contrary to popular belief. If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. It's very simple. You have a tremendous amount of responsibility over your children. And the Lord has told them to listen to you in everything. So you're entrusted with these little ones and God has told you now how to raise him. How to raise those children. They're pleasing him by listening to you and he's told you how he wants you to raise them. And the basic reason for him to tell you to, to not spare the rod, or maybe better put, to spank him, is so that he won't go to hell. That's literally what the text says. So that he won't go to hell. In other words, your child needs to understand that punishment against the body, corporal punishment, is real. And it's painful. And what happens as you continue to grow them in spiritual truth and as you teach them what hell is, it makes sense to them that a divine father would also punish against the body. That it hurts. They have something to compare it to. Hell isn't a timeout. Hell is physical anguish. And we're teaching that to our children. Like I said, it doesn't mean that it's always the right way to go. It doesn't mean it's always the best form of discipline. But it's literally commanded to us in Scripture because of that. But here comes the surprise in a first century Greco-Roman world. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged, he says. So the word that the ESV translates there, provoke, which is a a good word, basically the idea is that the discipline would be so strong and so constant always that your child can never come out from under discipline. So you're so stern, you're so harsh, they can never come out from under discipline. And so what they do instead is they try to come over the top of it by accepting it as a challenge. I'll break his will to discipline me. Right? Paul's telling the people, don't discipline them like that. That's not what we're aiming for. That's not what we're going for. Don't be harsh with your children, lest they become discouraged. Don't provoke them in that way, lest they become discouraged. Since the child can't escape the rod of discipline, he overcomes it by bad behavior. accepts it as a challenge. So as parents... What we can't forget is that our primary aim is to raise our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And at the end of the day, I want to woo my children to Christ. That's my hope. In discipline and encouragement and whatever, I want to woo them to come to Christ. I want to make following Christ Christ appealing. That doesn't mean if they don't come to Christ that you did something wrong. And it doesn't mean that if you 
do this always, they will for sure come to Christ. Ultimately, that's between them and the Lord. But what we're always doing is we're gauging our child's disposition and and attempting to discern what form of discipline is going to be best in each case with the aim that we're directing them toward the Lord, that we're guiding them in how to follow the Lord and how to listen to His voice and how to obey. We're allowing them to see that by letting them see what pleases you. Parents and and fathers in particular, your children probably know what angers you. I think they're born with that knowledge. I can't prove it, but I think they're born knowing where the, the button is, right? They're born with it. They know what angers you, but do they know what pleases you? Do you show them your affection? Do you tell them that you love them? Do you demonstrate for them what pleases them? Do you identify the God-given gifts and abilities that they have in them and encourage them to grow in those giftings and abilities? See, these are meant to be held in tension because there are probably some fathers in here as well who... their, their children don't even know, they only know what pleases them. They don't know what angers them. And that's not good either. If they never see your discipline, then they never see the ramification for sin. See, God has granted a tremendous amount of authority to parents. And we're to steward it wisely in discipline and love, always pointing them to Christ, raising them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Look at the third thing he says here last. The servant-master relationship should focus on eternal rather than temporal rewards. The servant-master relationship should focus on eternal rather than temporal rewards. Uh, look at verse 22 here. Bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, a word does need to be said here about the relationship that's on display in this text. The servant-master relationship. And you'll hear people in the, in the world spend a great deal of time talking about the Bible condoning slavery. Or maybe even the biblical writers had the opportunity to dissolve slavery right here in the text, and they didn't take it. So Paul didn't write what he could have written to dissolve slavery right there, just ab- abolishing it altogether through the written word. So I think it's, it's wise for us to just spend a, a little bit of time at least addressing that question, because you're probably going to hear it. What's the nature of the relationship that we're, working, we're, we're looking at here? So the, the term for bondservant can often be translated slave. Sometimes it's a, it's a good translation to, to translate it slave. And when the modern world hears, hears the word slave or slavery, immediately our mind goes to America pre-1863. And probably it should, that kind of slavery. Or maybe even in modern day, uh, the slavery of like, human trafficking or something like that. And so we look at that and we say, well, why didn't Paul just say all of that is, is just disregard it and abandon it altogether? And why didn't he just abolish it right there when maybe he could have 
if that's the kind of relationship that's on display. But I don't think that's the kind of relationship that's in view here. It's someone that was captured and someone that was taken and someone that was sold into slavery. Mainly because the Bible expressly forbids that kind of relationship in Exodus 21.16. Exodus 21.16 says this, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. So even the Old Testament condemns that form of slavery altogether and outright. So it's unlikely that Paul would be writing to a, a world of Christians in the church at Colossae and would say, yeah, go ahead with that, right? I don't think that's what's on display here in this text. It's not the same kind of relationship as what we would see in pre, uh, America pre-1863 or in human trafficking or things like that. However, that isn't to excuse a history of Christianity that has condoned that form of slavery or simply overlooked those verses. The Puritans, for all their theological fervor and all their sharing of the gospel in the 1700s throughout the colonies in America, seem to have overlooked this verse. They still found it okay for one reason or another to own human beings. And it's a tragedy. But Christians are not immune from sins. But that's just it. It's a sin. And the Bible condemns it, specifically teaches it against it as a sin. Right. However, while I don't see this relationship as someone that's captured and put into service by force, this is also more than an employer-employee relationship. Amen. All right? That's more than what's going on here, employer-employee. Now, the principles that Paul is laying out certainly would apply to someone who is an employee. It would be the same kind of thing. You would apply that into your work life. But at the end of the day, a 21st century employee, when he or she clocks out, goes home. And if he or she wants to, they can quit that's not what we're seeing in this kind of relationship. This kind of relationship, certainly the slaveholder would be considered or would consider that person property. They would own this person. And he would be given housing and food in exchange for service. Amen. Now, we could spend forever on this. Sermon series probably in and of itself, and maybe one day we will, but let me say this. The New Testament is beginning the process of the dissolution of slavery with texts like this. And where you have found great abolitionist movements in history, they've been from Orthodox Christians. Amen. But I'm thinking about particularly Ephesians 6-9. You can write these down. You can look at them later. We don't have time to read them right now. But Ephesians 6-9, 1 Timothy 6-1 and 2, and Philemon 12-16. See, the transition that's happening in the New Testament is that the apostles are challenging the Christians to think of themselves as brothers and sisters who are all called by the name of Christ. That they've all been put on an equal field. So a master and a slave are becoming brother and sister in Christ. Or are made brother and sister in Christ. In Christ. Brothers and sisters. So Paul commends this way of thinking. 
And he's mentioned it several times. And what ends up happening is the relationship between master and slave in Christ becomes one of employment more than it is slavery. It's the nature of the relationship and how it changes in Christ. So the master is commanded in Colossians 4.1 to treat the bondservant justly and fairly. And in Ephesians 6.9, he's told to stop threatening and keep in mind that he has a master too in heaven that is his ultimate judge. So effectively, you have in the New Testament especially, there's this elevated slave master and this lower debased slave that are now gaining equal footing by being um, brother and sister in Christ. So that being said, what is the command given to the servant? As we transition and think about how this would apply to our regular everyday lives, even as we work for people or work with people, what does he say? Obey in everything. Submit to your earthly masters. But what follows is Paul giving three exhortations. Pay close attention to these. He says, first, fear the Lord in verse 22. Fear the Lord. Then he says, work as for the Lord in verse 23. Then he says, uh, the Lord, from the Lord you'll receive your reward in verse 24. To drive home the point, at the end of verse 24, you are serving the Lord Christ. So no matter what your job is, no matter what your work is, it is for the Lord. This is the transition that's happened. Now that Christ has brought you into His family, now that He is making you one whole family, now that He is bringing color into our world and He's made us citizens of the kingdom of heaven, you are to serve Him. All tribute belongs to the King, not to man. Every tribute belongs to the king and not to man. So now, as I said, the principles that are at work here certainly apply to the employee, even if that wasn't Paul's original target. If you work harder when your boss is around than when he's gone, you're not working for the Lord. You're not considering the Lord your boss. Because he's always watching. He's always around. And that's what Paul means here when he says, by way of eye service. It could be either that I'm doing work so that people will see me and praise me, or it could be that when they're watching me, that's when I do my job. And when they're not watching me, I don't. Either way, it's still working by way of eye service. And it undermines fearing the Lord because he's always watching and he cares for how you work because you're not working for your boss. You're working for him. and, And working for Jesus changes your work ethic. It also changes your satisfaction with your job. There will be so many people that feel like they're working a pointless job. I put together widgets. And the only purpose for those widgets is to keep the toast down whenever you push the lever. I don't feel like I'm changing things in the future. I don't feel like this has an eternal impact. I don't feel like it's, it's really doing that much good. But you see what Paul is saying here is you're not working for that. You're working for the Lord. And have you ever considered that he put you in that job? He gave you that job. Not only as a means of providing for your family, but teaching you what submission looks like. What finding joy in your labor simply because you work for him looks like. So he encourages, Paul encourages the servant here to work heartily 
he says. And that word usually, usually means soul. We usually translate it for soul. And he's saying that deep down, very deep down in your core, from your heart, you're actually doing this. You're doing it with as much gusto and with as much passion as you possibly can muster. You're working with a constant realization that who I am working for is Christ, not for man. But the reason that he points to is that Christ will reward you in the end. He's the one that will pay you truly. Inheritance is your reward. So here again, we have that same concept coming to the foreground. Is setting your minds on an eternal reward rather than on a a reward that you could possibly have in this life. And it makes your labor worthwhile. So effectively, he's reminding the servant that you'll be paid handsomely. You should notice that theme coming back over and over and over again. The one that is submitting, whether it's wives or children or servants, are not doing so because the master of the house is worthy. They're doing so because the master of the universe is worthy. Amen. That's the underlying premise of the whole thing. Now, the crucial element of the Easter story that we so often forget, we talk about the death burial, and resurrection. But the one that we usually leave out is the ascension. That Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father and He's right now making all His enemies His footstool. He is right now gathering His children from the corner, four corners of the earth and He is right now ruling and reigning. Literally at this very moment, He is ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. He is right now taking account of wrongs suffered. And that's why Paul ends this passage the way he does. That the wrongdoer will be paid back for every wrong he has done and there is no partiality. The wicked will have their day in court and their wealth will not buy off the judge. Their wealth will not ensure that things go their way. They will have their day in court. And this is why the masters are to treat their servants remembering this fact. That in heaven you have an earthly master and you will answer to him one day for all that you have done. And he is in heaven right now taking account. So the heavenly minded household has been impacted by the kingdom of heaven so that all the relationships are restored with a divine direction. Everything is pointed back to Christ. But men, this begins with you. It begins with you. Paul speaks to the wife, to the child, to the servant. But do you notice that the men are in all three pairings? Husbands, fathers, masters, one man could be all three. Men, you're leading your families, but where are you leading them? My recommendation is that you begin with spiritual training. You begin teaching your household what it's like to follow the Lord with spiritual training. And and many men will say, I I don't know what that looks like. I don't even know how to do that. I need to be trained myself. That's what something very simple like catechisms are for. A series of simple questions followed by simple answers that help train your children in the language of faith. 
And guess what they also do for someone who is unspiritually trained as an adult? They teach you as well. There are tons of Baptist catechisms out there that are great. Some of them are free online. You can Google them and you can begin asking your children these questions. You can begin studying them yourself. Start there. But very simply, opening up the Bible at the table. Reading a passage and saying, what does it say? What does it mean? Why does that matter? Is helpful in training your family. As your children get older, as they progress in knowledge, they'll begin answering those questions with you. What does the text say? What does it mean? What does it matter? And it brings the Bible into the, as the centerpiece of your family where you can begin discussing over it. At the end of the day, the church is not ultimately responsible for your child's discipleship. You are. It's your responsibility. Christ's kingdom is slowly beginning to spread. The color is gradually beginning to fill the frame, and it starts with the family. If you want to be a heavenly-minded church, which I do, believe it or not, it does not start with what happens here on Sunday morning. It starts in the home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so glad that as a parent, we have you to look at. We have you as an example, a divine father. Lord, I pray that brings encouragement to all of us, especially all of us as parents. Pray that even when we think about our kids, maybe some kids wandering in, in despair and not following after you, if you, our Heavenly Father, have children that stray, so will we. And Lord, we're grateful that we have you to look at as an example of a Father who continues to wait and continues to love, continues to come to his children, continues to wake them up, out of despair and bring them to repentance. Pray, Lord, that each and every one of us in this room would begin to think about what role we play in our household. As we think about raising our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, I pray that you will teach us how to do that. I pray that you will give to us people to come alongside of us in this body and disciple us in doing that. Pray, Lord, that the next generation and every generation hereafter would grow in its fervency towards you. And this church, Emmanuel Baptist Church, would be a catalyst for that in Tuscaloosa. In Jesus' name, amen.